Welcome to our show, Calm is Hot, short for Communication is Hot. I'm your host, Jade. My pronouns are she, her, hers. Storytelling is a huge part of how humankind has communicated for centuries, and it's played a crucial role in my development, growth, successes, and magical connections on my journey of life. I believe each of us has a story to share. My goal is to create space for underrepresented voices to be able to do so and improve our communication skills so we may be the best versions of ourselves and exist in harmony. Make sure you stay tuned weekly for new episodes by yours truly and with guests. Stay in touch on Instagram at calm underscore is underscore hot. Details in the show notes below. Lastly, all content is intended for educational purposes only. Let's do this. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Calm is Hot. My name is Jade. My pronouns are she, hers. And our guest today is someone who I have loved, admired, respected, whose work I have followed for years. You are an icon to so many of us in so many different capacities. Would you like to introduce yourself? Thank you. If I'm if I'm blushing, it's natural. Hi, I am Dr. Loretta, or Lore for short, Lamaster. My pronouns are she, they. I'm assistant professor at Arizona State University. And oh, it's so good to be just connecting with you, Jade. This is so lovely. And hello to everybody, whoever is engaging this. Yay! <laughs> I know. I think the first time that we actually got to meet in person was at a conference, I believe. I believe it was a Western conference. I don't remember the location, but I remember laughing in a, what is that? Like the, the foyer of the hotel, just laughing yes. out loud out there, taking up lots of space together. Ooh, we were definitely laughing very loudly. <laughs> and that is a, hmm? I'm just, I'm here for the spectacle, just being the spectacle. <laughs> Ooh, that part. <laughs> yeah, especially in the context of an academic conference where everyone's very dressed up and focused, you know, that sort of thing. Oh my gosh. They get, they get into this weird zone of like professionalism and having to be like a certain type of performative academic. And I'm like, can't we just be ourselves? Yeah, completely. (laughs) It's at least what I strive for. (laughs) I love it. Mm. So I know you and I know the work that you've done research But for folks who are just meeting you or hearing from you for the first time, would you like to give a little background on some of the research and work you do? Sure. Um, It's I guess my my work goes in all kinds of different directions, but I am an interdisciplinary communication scholar. And I would say the discipline I most regularly write in or align with is also women's gender sexuality studies differently defined based on the institution, but I've largely studied the cultural production of difference, how difference is rendered on bodies, how bodies are made different, and how more recently, my, a lot of my work, especially teaching-wise, is how to engage the body, slow down communication so that we can begin to implicate our deep embodied responses to difference. So that if it's fear, we can sit with the fear, name that fear as fear, instead of suppressing and acting like, no, this is fine. Well, difference difference provokes. And how we respond to that difference doesn't have to be 
um, dehumanizing response. It can be affirmative. So that's where, you know, my, my work is located broadly within, within difference. I would say the community or communities I focus in on largely are queer and trans folks of color, particularly what survival can look like together and apart. Wow. There is so much I want to just dive into from that. What motivated you to pursue this type of research? Sure. I, I guess what I, I, you know, I actually, I forgot one whole area of my research. That's a big deal. And that might be a good entry point here, which is my work in pedagogy and my commitment to critical pedagogy. So what made me want to get into this, it actually did start as an undergraduate at Cal State Long Beach and the women's gender, at the time, women's studies department. And they had a feminist pedagogy track and I took the feminist pedagogy track and, you know, I learned feminist pedagogy approaches that most of my peers didn't ever hear the word pedagogy. And so they were, compared to the people I was going through graduate school, teaching pedagogy was something coming later for them. And so I didn't really recognize this until I went sort of further in because I was already engaging with various feminist pedagogues who were really expanding my thinking of the learning process, the philosophy of education, and so forth. So I would say that I entered into this work through very foundational experiences as an undergraduate student. That was one area's pedagogy. And the other area around, uh, around difference regards specifically my first mentor, Dr. Angela Bowen. She was a, a, a Black radical lesbian uh, feminist who really helped me, well, she brought me to feminism. And it wasn't until later that I learned that white feminism is a thing because she brought me to feminism through Black feminism. And so moving through graduate school, my feminist politic has always sort of started with Black feminism. And I've learned these other feminist traditions that like one of those would be what we might call like contemporary TERFs, for instance. There were certainly those in my, my, my undergrad program in the early 2000s. And I, I was very well aware of that at the time. But I also know that my mentor, Angela Bowen, who for all intents and purposes, by contemporary standards, might be called a turf. In fact, approach something a little different, which meant that the body wasn't a, the gender, and the body is not what marked the gender. And that was always her politic: was that white women and white men have always used black women's bodies against them. And so she had a fundamental understanding of gender that was more closely aligned to transness. That I, it's taken me decades to really understand it for myself. But I would say that her early impact and the tensions we had around her politic and gender, my politic and gender, I've been working through that ever since in the most productive of ways. So I would say it, it really begins there, some of my early engagements with Dr. Bowen. Wow. Very quickly, for those who may not be academics, do you mind just quickly describing like pedagogy? Yeah, completely. So pedagogy um, means lots of things to different people, but we might say broadly a philosophy of educating or education. And so if we're thinking about the sort of um, communication pedagogy, we might be thinking in our field, at least there's like two largely two predominant ways we think about this communication, education and instructional communication and comad or communication education is the sort of teaching of communication studies. And so this is where we might be studying inter how to teach intercultural calm effectively. Instructional calm is the studying the function of communication across all classes, curriculum levels. And so that, that might be where we're outsourcing more of our thought to other disciplines who are trying to learn how to teach more effectively, right? Now, when I say pedagogy, however, 
I understand pedagogy as a philosophical anchor for me to understand the implications of being an educator in public institutions of higher education. And typical, by typical, I mean sort of normative education, and most people hold this view. The classroom is presumed to be a neutral space where learning occurs. The teacher is supposed to be objective so they can more effectively teach. And the students are supposed to sit down, shut up, and, and sort of passively take in that information. And then the school itself is like a neutral ground in which people come to enrich themselves. I didn't experience that as a trans femme moving through education. I understood that the classroom was always political before I entered it because I already knew my body didn't fit in certain chairs. I already knew that the way my body was being taken up and had been was not something neutral, but something that was being pressed onto my person over and over again. And pedagogy helped me to understand that well-meaning teachers who are pressing and molding were in fact well-intended, but that was still violence and it was still a problem. And so I understand pedagogy as a, a ground that we can intellectually implicate and engage how power functions in learning spaces. And so that's what I would study is uh, what's not just like the teacher is powerful, but student silence is a form of radical communication. If students are like angry at the way the teacher mispronounces their name every single day, of course they'd be silent, but I would read that silence as they're clearly calling me out. I, I have to figure out what this silence is, not they're a trouble. And, and there's a tendency to sort of uh, point out sort of externally, right? Um, so I, that's pedagogy, I guess, broadly. Does, does that make sense? Yes. Okay. For me, I think it is just a term that I'm still unpacking as like a newer person in academia. And so I really appreciate you giving so much context. I think it helps people understand this and I'm all about the context. Yeah, completely, completely. Yes. Yeah. And I love that you call attention to power, mm -hmm. power dynamics, the awareness of it and also how it functions. So, which I'm sure we'll dive more into. <laughs> Because, you know, power, it's like, oof, everywhere. Everywhere. Yeah. And one of the things that I'm interested in kind of, I'd love to learn more about just from you being a part of academia and being who you are, kind of a little bit about your journey, mm -hmm. if you're comfortable sharing, like yeah. starting out to now where you are. And for some people who don't know, you the title that you have now is a, a pretty badass title <laughs> thank you I, mean, I think so yes yeah I, I i went to lots of schools growing up as a young person in mostly southern california a child of um four marriages divorces on one side of my family and three on the other so in some way between seven and nine familial combinations raised me between zero and 18. And that also meant I moved a lot from zero to 18, constantly moving. And it's, I'm 40 years old now, 41 next month. And it's taken me decades to really understand like how I relate to people based on these early, you know, fundamental decades of the first 18, 20 years of my life that have been very disorganized around various families, aggressions towards femininity 
towards femininity on my body in particular and being targeted regardless of the family that my body was made a problem. And so I didn't know this really as a young person, you know, because as a young person, um, the white side of my family, I was raised Southern Baptist. And I would say that that's like the most, had the greatest impact on how I constitute a sense of shame comes from a lot of the trauma, the threats around uh, hell and side comments and gaslighting, all of this that sort of came up and sort of moving forward into like the last 20 years from like 20 or 18 to where I'm at right now is where I sort of make the slow turn towards higher education. And I'll be honest, there's a very particular path here. And I don't really talk about some of the specifics here, not because it's secret. It's more like I'm constantly unpacking some things that happened in my early 20s, late teens, early 20s. And I'll just bulldoze through some real quick. So I think that they're important for how it's shaped my research. One is when I was 18, a senior in high school, the January of 1999, that was my senior year, my middle brother suddenly passed away from a cancer, an aggressive form of cancer that took his body in about seven days, very fast, very hard. And so it was me and my younger brother and my mom like the surviving family, I guess, in some ways. But we kind of stopped talking at that point as a family. Uh, we never knew what, to, we didn't know how to recover from this. Um, and, but at the same time, I was sort of moving into my own life. I was working at Disneyland and doing that full time. And around this same time, I'm turning to like alcohol. I'm turning to self-soothing. I'm dealing with grief and working and going to a junior college. I spent six years at a junior college. And ultimately, I have a, a moment where I'll just say there was homophobia and my teeth go missing and uh, had to have a few years of reconstructive surgery on my mouth. Because of that, I find like I wasn't something that was like uh, hot, young, queer, none of that. But I became so uglyfied by like normative gay standards with missing teeth that I turned to books. I turned back to reading and writing and focusing on my studies instead of being out and partying. And there was a distinct shift that happened. That is out of my ugliness that came from a homophobic attack is what began to drive the heart, like the heart of my work. And that's when I had met Angela Bowen was I was an angry queer who had recognized like, oh, this whole looks thing of normative gay culture that was sold to me is not that's not what a politic is. And this is where I was learning that it was, you know, the outcast queers, basically the people I surround myself with, myself included, that sort of came from that. And so I, 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 I share that to say that was like the early entry point. I also, in my early 20s, when I decided, or mid, late 20s, when I decided to go to graduate school, intentionally pulled back, throttled back on my own transition because I wanted to move into higher education and I just didn't have the capacity to deal with that in my mind. And so I instead studied transness as I moved through higher education and strategically called myself, you know, non-binary, which is also true, used to be genderqueer back in the day, but never really gave into femme the way that I do now, finally, because of the, 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 uh, the title I have now. It's assistant professor. I'm on the tenure track. Uh, assistant Professor of Critical Cultural uh, Communication and Performance Studies. And it was only this last year, and my 40th, was when I actually returned to old versions of my transition to start again. And so this last year has been a lot of like what ifs, um, grieving and joy, like 
big, conflicting, beautiful, hard processing, right? But I, I, I guess like that's the, the gist of my journey. You know, the background behind that, I'm a full-time caretaker. I've been married to my comrade spouse for over a decade and we moved through the world together as well. That's a whole nother story, but yeah. I want to thank you for opening up and being so vulnerable and honest about so many experiences. Firstly, I just want to say it is really powerful what can sometimes come from grief and from grieving and having experienced grief at a young age myself with a very close family member, I, I can relate in my own way and know that sometimes there's like something there, there's something there that just kind of makes you change the outlook on life that you may have. And I think we don't do enough talk about and, and or listening about grief in and of itself. And then moving that, because to me, grief is not just only loss of a person or a family member. It's also like we experience it in so many ways, right? As we change and navigate our identities. There's also the grieving process of changing our lifestyles. And I think it's just so powerful to hear you speak your truth about moving through these different social phenomenon that we know exist. We know that the gay culture perpetuates a very toxic, normative, like, way to exist in the world. And, like, if you don't fit all of that criteria, yeah. what, like, what is there for you in that, in that community? And it can be really toxic and also very not welcoming. Yeah, exactly. And so the fact that you turn to the books and you turn to research and you turn to kind of immersing yourself in knowledge, I think also speaks to this like hunger, I think for something more. And mm. I would argue even for something more with like with more depth. Oh, 100%. I mean, I, I you know, just even thinking about back about this, it makes me like my earliest studies were on my first study with Angela Bowen was, was called Paradox in Performance, but it was a study, a, rhetoric, a visual rhetorical study of anti-racist queer skinheads and how their aesthetic presentation offered a critique of mainstream gay culture. Like that was my first undergrad study as a junior under Angela Bowen. And like, here's this like black radical lesbian feminist. And I'm like, so I'm going to study some skinheads, but hold on. This is what this is. And you, when, I, when I talk about like thick intersectional training, she was the one who pushed me into this like further deeper, like there's always more happening here. And from there it became where a lot of my work has been, especially my earliest work was more like activist oriented was the racism within the queer communities that I was organizing. I was beginning to not only, um, I, I, well, I, not that I was beginning to see them, I was in positions of leadership where I was beginning to have more effect to be able to say like, we have to shift this thing and that resistance I would get became the thing I was studying was who was, who was trying to stop me and what words were they using? What were the rhetorical tactics? Um, and I think that it all really, yeah, so it's all connected in, in that sort of way. Oh my gosh, there's so much to unpack there. <laughs> I feel like there's also a connection between what you just shared and something else I wanted to go back to with what you shared previously. Sure. And I think 
finding yourself and navigating your experience with gender and this journey, right? Being an ongoing process, an ongoing journey. It's also really powerful to hear you call attention to the racism in the queer community, marking that as a very real, valid reality that you and I both know exists and is so disgusting and deeply entrenched in queer culture. Yeah. Um, and also just you kind of calling attention to, there, there's just so much, I, I want to go in so many different directions. Well, we can talk about just briefly that it was not a surprise to me that a, a, a significant upswing in white LGB identified voters voted Trump in 2020, for instance, over 30% increase. Why? Because if we think about the sort of law, so, it, you know, <clears throat> for those of us who can recall like a conscious moment before marriage equality became uh, unquestionable, in that time frame till today, those voters have really felt fallen into the institutional privilege that comes with marriage. And so it has afforded them the capacity to fall deeper into whiteness through a sort of respectable expression of queerness, which is to say that now they're able to protect their assets with other white folk because they're recognized as valid. And so, of course, we're going to see more white queer people who are often married be sort of falling in line with white supremacy. And it's going to keep increasing, frankly, because we, we misunderstand mis, uh, something like marriage as an indicator of success. Those of us who were against marriage early on, including myself, this was the ongoing struggle. I was a queer person who's been married for 10 years and I'm anti-marriage and was anti-gay marriage mostly because it was a misnomer of somehow that being a marker of equality. It's not, it's just state recognition and, and it, it entrenches someone in a state structure um, so that they can feel more protected. But those who don't have resources or assets to pass on, like it, it okay, I struggle with that one. But we, that's one way you can talk about this. I feel like that's a very, to you and I, I think this is just like, oh, that makes sense. But to some people that may be a very controversial position or controversial ideology to have. And I love that you are very clear. So for anyone who's like, wait, what? You're anti? It's like, to me, I read it more as you're anti the state structure and supporting a system that's built by white supremacy to help certain people have more advantages. That's exactly right. I mean, at the end of the day, I'm a poly person too, and I've always dated multiple people. I, I mean, I, while, while I'm married, I have two partners right now um, that for all intents and purposes, like can't visit me if I'm sick, right? They're just friends. But from a queer perspective, friends are the most important thing we have because that is our family. And that's where the problem comes in as a queer person is those of us who are pushed out of bio families are sort of, uh, yeah, I just say pushed out. Often we're framed as leaving. I don't think we leave it. I think we're pushed out. Um, and so when we're pushed out of those families for whatever reasons and we turn to our you know, queer families or families of choice, those don't hold the same weight in an institutional structure of validity. And that I reject. Hate that. Yeah. Yeah. I hate it. I got married and it was really awkward because 
it came, it was like so easy. Well, firstly, it was so easy to do. And then secondly, it was like the hardest thing to undo. And it's all, yeah, divorced. It's almost. It's, it's hard to divorce. It is wild yeah. how difficult they make it to, to divorce, to end it but how easy they make it to happen. I'm like, what if you just made it more difficult for it to happen? <laughs> you have lower divorce rates. <laughs> Probably. I mean, 100%. I, it, it's just, it becomes a sort of, um, what gets lost in the conversations of marriage is the way that the state is in charge of organizing us. And we don't ever get to question that that's where we're going. Everything becomes a red herring where we're like, well, I want rights. Why do I have to ask the daddy state for rights? Like, I don't understand where that logic is normalized um, to the point where, as opposed to imagining different kinds of ways of being in the world, which is where I'm committed to being. Um, and that is probably the result of largely working with trans sex workers, like folks who are well outside of um, respectability politics, not by choice, right? Like by design. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I see marriage in the context of where my communities are as a distraction, but certainly useful for people. Like it helps me as a caretaker to get the proper care to this person that I care about. Even though we're not together, we are married. It allows me to get those resources to her. Um, and so that's where it's useful, but that shouldn't bar other people from getting those resources. Yeah, yeah. Ooh, ooh, I feel like we could do a whole episode just on this. Yeah. Yeah, really, it's about universal health care. I hear you. <laughs> uh, I just, yeah, can we just like revamp the whole healthcare system? Can we just completely burn down and change the way we societally and structurally view relationships? Yeah. And also, you speaking to being in a polyamory relationship, I guarantee you someone caught that and is like, oh, I want to hear more about that. Would sure. you mind potentially speaking more to polyamory, what it means for you? And yeah, totally. Um, I would say I've never been a monogamous person. Um, it was, it's more like I'm, you know, I'm maybe with different people, but um, poly to me is multiple things. Uh, first off, um, I under, I'm, I'm a, um, I, I, I'm a huge fan of what I call sustained queer intimacies and they don't have to be sexual, even though the queer body is often sexualized. But um, when there is deep cuddling and emotional support in a very violent world that would rather some of us unalived, then sex doesn't have to be the means of talking about relating, but laughing together amidst that turmoil is more important, I would argue. And for me, polyamory, gestures to this broader means of connecting um, and sustained well I'm dating two people right now I've got tons of sustained queer intimacy some sexual some not but they're like relationships I've been building all over the U.S. all over the world just ongoing connections relationships that isn't just about marriage family like this use function, but rather world building with queer people all over. So that they, me, they, we feel um, when I'm traveling, I hopefully have connections to people 
so that if I'm in an academic conference, I don't have to stay there. I can leave like I do and meet people at their homes and like, you know, whatever, chill with them, with, with community that actually gives me life, right? So there, there's that broader thing. Also, like, as a, I, I'm, I do a lot of caretaking in my life. And I also have a lot of emotions myself. And part of uh, being a, a poly person allows me to sort of, um, I guess we might say uh, democracy is a weird word for me, but democratizing my emotional needs. Um, and, and so in that regard, like, like both of my partners right now, I only allow them to um, engage certain aspects of my emotional needs because it is not the responsibility of my other to fix me or to make me whole. Um, that to me is, um, to me, that sounds like grounds for some emotional manipulation in a relationship um, where someone is, you know, my whole or I'm nothing without you. Like that leads to some weird shit. And I'm really about how can we find our whole selves in community with people? Um, right. Like that, that's, I think that that's the big thing, but like, also like, I just love hanging out with queer people and, you know, talking shit and what's the local politics and, and so on and so forth. And sometimes uh, the thing is, is I just, I don't stop myself from exploring a relationship with someone. It's probably the best way to say it. And I don't fall to this. Well, I'm dating. Okay. I'm dating. And this has been awesome talk. Do you want to hang out some more? I don't think, I think that that's, it would be, um, it would be a missed opportunity for me not to lean into getting to know a queer person better. Yes, so much yes. <laughs> I am obsessed. After you've defined it in this way, I'm like, oh, that's me. I'm currently living the same way. <laughs> I don't even think I realized it. I feel, I, I wrote some notes down while you were sharing because I wanted to be able to remember. Um, relationships are not just meant for basic procreating, like this word of the just use, right? Right, right. And I love that you call attention to that. I also love that you call attention to the reality that so many of us are deserving of experiencing care in a violent world like it is absolutely unimaginable to me to put all of my emotional mm -hmm. needs it is so it is so dangerous and toxic to have an i to have this belief that only one person can ever truly fulfill like us and our needs right like that is, that's pretty wild. Yeah, I think so. And, and it's, I would say that it's, uh, I, I, I would link this to being the child of so many marriages and divorces. Um, mm. I don't think, you know, some would say that that's a, a bad experience broken. I think it gave me a genuinely real look at how relationships work and how the state is a form of, of violence, especially when youth don't have a say in what's going on around them. Um, and I understood that when uh, someone would say, I'm doing this for your benefit, to always reject what was being said at that point. Go, nope, this is not for me clearly. And I knew that from a very young age, that um, most things were not for me. They were for minimizing other people's discomfort about me or how I was moving through the world or whatever. Um, but that notion is, um, 
to me, highly toxic. The notion of uh, another person is responsible for my emotional healing or whatnot. No, even, sorry, go ahead. No, please go. I, I was just going to say that like one, like one of the hardest things to be able to do uh, with other queer people, if you, like to be a real, really present person is learning how to hone the skill of not fixing person's pain. That doesn't mean that we don't commit to coalitionally work to change structure, like culture, like these are things we can do. But when it comes to like, like Jade, maybe you're having a rough, a rough week and you're like, girl, I just need to fucking yell. Then I get to be a sounding board where you yell. I don't go, whoa, 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 whoa. I just let you yell. And in fact, I'm going to throw a glass so you can break a glass and I'm going to rev it up with you. And that to me is more about facilitating how we can find calm together. And that can be really radical and different. And we may not know what to do yet until we kind of explore that. Um, and that's very much in some ways uh, how I experience polyamory uh, moving through the world as well is every single connection can facilitate something about myself I didn't know and didn't know how to ask until I'm like, wow, I'm confronted with you all of a sudden and I don't know what to do with this. And I love it. Oh my gosh. I love this. I feel so similarly, yeah. this sense of community being so much more, um, uh, like just so much more adventurous. I don't know if that's the right word, but ex ex allowing opportunity to explore not only yourself, but all these other various ways that people respond to life exist in the world yeah. and navigate sometimes very similar and sometimes very different experiences. And many times a lot of us just, I think, yeah. forget that it's not about fixing people. It's not about coming up with like, okay, here's how you need to be like better. Here's how you can be better. It's about like, do you just need space? Do you just want like a safe space to just like let it out? And I love that you use the example of like, do you want to just yell? Yeah. Cause like we can yell together. And I'm like that, that moment is when magic is created. I agree. And it's just like meeting someone where they're at. Like they just want me to be, I mean, <clears throat> so freak, uh, um, one of my, um, a friend of mine was a doctoral advisee person, um, uh, the two of us just finished a paper on kind of this a similar topic, and it's uh, queer of color uh, sort of survival and um, how we can facilitate healing, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And like the very last section, the, the title we call it, which I just love and I sit with it a lot is, will you sit with me a bit while I cry? Um, or in some pieces I've been writing lately on like um, suicidality, um, in queer spaces. I've been referencing the capacity to just sit in the ick for a bit is what I call it. And, um, and like, that's the hardest work that I've had to learn how to do is sit in the ick, uh, recognize like this is not fixable right now, but we do know that the resources for this person are more violent than me just sitting in the ick with this person. That's why we're going to do this and hunker down and eat ice cream and get through this shit and scream. And, <clears throat> but you know, it's, it's real, I think it's just real human presence. Uh, and we really struggle with that if it's not coming from a bio family. Yes. Yeah. Oh, 100%. I mean, this is all too close to home. I know. And you know, the worst part about it is when it comes to bio family, it's presumed that because you're bio family, that you don't have to ask permission or consent for that support. 
Mm. And when, with, when we go to a polyethic that's outside of this, well, not polyethic, I would say just like a non-monogamous, like a queer, maybe more like a queer political ethic would be that um, I don't presume that you ever want me to fix a thing. Or I would, like uh, when it comes to hugs, a very simple thing, do you even want to hug? Because if so, I would love that too. Like those basic things, whereas in bio families, it's very, we do what we're going to want and you're not going to question the family. Uh, and it certainly reverberates out to these like really radical ways of, hey, Jade, I'm really struggling. I just need an ear right now. Please don't say a fucking word. Just stay calm. I just need to yell for just a moment. And then and then if you're not in the space, you can say, I can't right now. And I, I have to hear that. Whereas in a, a sort of typical familial structure, you're supposed to suck that up. And I don't know. No. <laughs> yes, 100%. I feel like everybody should be able to have agency and the autonomy to set boundaries and also like have, say, like have a space for that expression of feeling um and also for people to put boundaries up and say i can't right now like or that's a little too like past my bandwidth of what i can handle i find that i have those conversations and check-ins with queer people much more often than i do with not queer friends. I agree. I agree. And and I think it's 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 often it's built into some queer politics, I think. Not all, but I do also I do I'm more likely to not only hear it with other queers, but when I ask for that consent, I know they won't get defensive or there's less likelihood that they'll get defensive or take it on personally. Um and that's that that's that's a nicer relief I think to find. Um, but I will, I also wanted to add that like, <laughs> maybe it's just funny, but one of the things I like to do when I go to, uh, like conferences, uh, pretty notorious for this in my, at least my own personal world is I'll get to a, a new place for a conference. I will find someone on some app somewhere, like just connecting with people, like who are the local weirdos here? What's up? What's up? And then usually it comes down to like, a, I'm here for X number of hours. How do you feel like, like being emotionally raw with each other, falling in love, and then disappearing after that. And usually someone's in on that. And we'll grab dinner and then it, maybe there's, maybe it's sexual, but that's like not the point. It's like, we're gonna let out all of our emotional issues together in this hotel room together, get it all out and cuddle. And then like, that's it. And that to me is a beautiful thing. Um, that I, that's very healing for me. They're people whose names I remember um, and I get to hold for them what they're holding for me, um, which is lovely. Oh my gosh, that's beautiful. I feel like my years of sex work are pretty much that, except most of the time I didn't get to opt out of listening because <laughs> I was getting paid, yeah, but well like, how much more beautiful and magical can these experiences be? Of course, I just have to make a joke about, you know, that stuff. But like, how beautiful and magical can it truly be to have space created where the connection is built on allowing the release of so much held from held within, deep within, oftentimes. Yeah. People need that release. Yeah. I think so many people need it cuddling we know the research says 
cuddling is super, super freaking healthy for like the, the, and I use the word healthy, but like, you know, it's super good for us. Like it's healing for us. That's a better word. Cuddling can be really healing for us. And it's just like, I'm going to start doing that. You have just inspired me to start a new practice. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Cuddle with your friends. Do more cuddling. When people come over say, do you want to watch uh, something silly? Uh, not Netflix and chill. YouTube scary videos. Like that kind of thing. And then just cuddle. Um, or gender reveal party fills are actually a really good genre to cuddle too, I think, personally. Can we talk shit about those? Yeah, always. <laughs> oh my gosh. Gender reveal parties are more responsible for like more fires. And it's. I'm just like, when are we going to be... When are we going to stop being so obsessed <laughs> as a culture? Like, what can, can we just like, let the child just like show up, do yeah. its thing, no. No. live its life. <laughs> We're like so obsessed with putting sexuality on babies and yeah. gender on babies. Like it's a whole thing. Yeah. We need a separate podcast just for that. I think, I think we do. I have like a whole bunch to say. <laughs> okay. We'll, yeah. we'll, I'm inviting you back for a second episode Yay. <laughs> and it'll be titled gender reveal parties. When will they end? <laughs> I love that. I can share one of my uh, research pieces on the function of the gasp that happens at a gender reveal party fail when they go, <gasps> And how that gasp communicates like an ideological possibility of like trans anger. <laughs> like that, that kid is, that kid is, they're, they're going, no, I'm not dealing with this shit. I like that. That's intense. Oh my gosh. Yeah. You're coming back for a okay. second episode. Count me in. <laughs> now back to the cuddling, because this is so what I think people could benefit from could heal, could use as a healing opportunity, especially yeah. because of the isolation that people have experienced and are, are still experiencing. What's one thing that you do to help communicate and set boundaries in these experiences of magic you like to create? Yeah, um, I find that asking direct questions about where body placement things go constantly is not a turnoff, as some have said before, I've heard like, it ruins the mood. I think that consent is part of the mood for me. Um, and frankly, as a trans person, I need to have certain conversations before there's actual intimacy that goes even a little even further than cuddling, which is like, what words are we going to use to describe certain body parts? Or how are you going to position your body in relation to mine? Or are there expectations you're bringing because of what you see my body to be? Um, so that we can sort of address this ahead of time, because otherwise, without that sort of like open, like radically open communication, um, we're running into like the presumption that I know what you're thinking. And that's where we get into some dangerous space, especially for those of us who maybe we go silent in those moments because we don't quite know what we like or don't know how this, you know, whatever the case may be, it can sort of unfold in different ways. But that regular, like, hey, how do you feel about me touching here? How about I hold here? Um, you know, uh, whatever that thing is, I think is um, 
yeah, I, I don't know how else to describe it. I think the other part is like, at least for like the, the, the queer trans people in my life, you know, uh, various harms are on our bodies. And so really learning how to pay attention to the sort of micro movements of a body that are letting you know, like that's probably a tender place, um, taking your time with that or pulling back from that and maybe opening a conversation later, like, hey, I noticed you kind of winced here. Or is that something you're like, was that just an itch? Or do you want to voice anything like that maybe my, my, my touch was eliciting um, without me getting defensive, without me going, whoa, what, you don't like me? As opposed to, oh, you're a whole human who has choices about how we share space. And um, yeah, so I, I, I would say that ongoing open dialogue um, completely is how I navigate these spaces. And people who are not into that are already gone out of my life. Uh, I don't have time for that, frankly. <laughs> Yes, the magic of communication and dialogue. Completely. I think this is where like my erotic uh, writing work, um, like, yeah, I, this is where that comes in is trying to find creative ways of like sexy ways of narrating like how consent can also sound in here, it, like how it's communicated differently in the moment um, where it can be uh, surprising and exciting and scary all at the same time. Um, but valid and whole as an experience, you know, or what does it mean when a person recoils? And that means the conversation, gesundheit, where the whole conversation sort of shifts um, into something else entirely. Um, and by, by which I mean, you know, um, um, you know, maybe someone's at the end of their sensory uh, sort of space and they say, hey, I need you to not touch me anymore. I'm being able to hear, got it, no problem. I could use that break too. Gesundheit, you have some really great sneezes, I must say, even though I can't hear them. Thank you. Um, <laughs> I apologize for disrupting our flow, your flow. <laughs> My sneezes are somewhat extreme. Yeah, no, me too. I scare myself pretty frequently. <laughs> now, the beauty and the magic that you're speaking to, for me, it feels so encouraging, so hope-filled, so beautiful, raw, real, authentic. And I'm like, we've got to start making it okay for these conversations to take place, I think, first and foremost. And so many of my students are first-year college students, and I think the, this is a part that, a part of life that maybe, hopefully, they'll get the opportunity if they would like to explore more of communication and setting boundaries, communication and consent, communication and um, likes, dislikes, sexuality in general. Completely. Is there anything else? Mm -hmm. uh, no, I just, I mean, completely. I, um, one of the classes I teach right now, it's a brand new class I just started here, an undergrad one, um, it's called Critical Conversations, and the whole point of the class is to rehearse hard conversations around uh, power and privilege in the classroom, and what I'm working with my undergraduates to do is to feel confident when they say words like white supremacy, being able to say this is white supremacy as a structure that is creating damage, as opposed to like, ah, I don't know if I should use... And being able to like lean into actual language that really aptly describes how violence functions. 
uh, instead of sort of tiptoeing around that. Um, and so I think that uh, this is where performance studies and communication is really helpful here, Jade, I, I think, is communicate or performance studies and communication enables us to encourage students to rehearse ways of communicating or understanding that how we imagine or play out a scenario is a valid way of like preparing our communicative experiences. Uh, and so likewise, when we have a, a community of like-minded people, people that, that we know loves our whole person and, 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 uh, and that I love their whole person, then maybe I can ask things like, hey, this is really uncomfortable, but can we rehearse through consent language? I've never used it in these particular ways. Like if you were in this scenario, what would you say? I just wanna hear some possibilities of what you might say and how you go through that instead of it being something personal. Um, or secret, because this should be like a public resource that we're drawing on and, and, and how we can better relate to one another, um, especially in intimate ways, be it sexual or not. Retweet, yes. <laughs> so much, yes. <laughs> you bring to these spaces so much magic and so much opportunity that I think wouldn't otherwise exist. And mm. I just want to ask, like there, the, I just got done interviewing someone else who also does education and whatnot. And I just have to, all, how are you finding a balance because you are taking on so much. There has to be an acknowledgement of your labor put into this work, creating spaces, holding the spaces, helping people manage their emotions and experiences and journeys. What are you currently doing to kind of help uh, feel and stay kind of, um, I guess, together, right? Yeah. Because some of it can even be re-traumatizing or whatnot. It sure can be. You know, um, one of the things is being honest with myself that if I look at my schedule and I know that there's going to probably be a lot of care need then that means that I have to give myself permission to go see like a partner uh, within 48 hours. I, you know, I don't live with my partners. I do live with my comrade spouse in separate rooms. And so um, giving myself a night or two to go like stay with a partner, be at their house, a whole different routine um, um, and allow them to care for me, which has been the hardest thing for me is being able to ask for care and get it. Uh, whether it's like cooking me some box macaroni and cheese, if that's what they have the capacity to do, then that's the care I'm going to get. And I want to honor that care. Um, but also knowing that they're, you know, the people in my life, my, I call them my care team, my care support. Um, I, I make sure that they're in a space to be able to carry the weight of things, right? Like this summer, I lost a very dear friend of mine. And I'm very fortunate that my two of my neighbors are actually like two young trans siblings of mine who I've been sort of moving through the world and they moved to next door. And when my friend had died, the two of them, they're much younger than me. And they, they came over and they held me for 24 hours of ugly crying and making sure I ate and I didn't have to ask. And I still just honor that as like a really radical, neat experience that was the result of communities that I'm constantly trying to create. Um, you know, if the structure is designed where when I am uh, unable to care for myself at some point, that there's always family there, if that doesn't exist, then we have to cultivate what we need before we need it. Um, and, and that's like a radical kind of interdependency, I think. Um, and anyone that can hold me while I ugly cry, 
and not fix it, they're just on their phone, that's, that's, that's real powerful to me uh, because it means someone is not afraid to share space when I'm really struggling with my emotions um, or my loss, you know. Did that for me at a conference in Seattle. Yeah. You held space for me when I had a major breakdown. I just am like, this is for me part of the beauty of building these, I call them queer relationships, yeah. right? Queer connections, like it's so intense to just be alive as we are in the bodies that we're in and for so many reasons and to have that type of support in these experiences i feel can truly be life-saving for many of us i'm very sorry to hear about the loss of your friend and just it's 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 necessary for us to have space to let it out yeah and not internalize the pain so I think that's exactly the point right there, what you just said. We need to have the opportunity to let it out immediately. To say like, this happened and this is not something that should have happened to my human person today. Like it's hard and this is difficult and it's complex, you know? Yeah. yeah. Oh my gosh. We're getting pretty deep here. I like that. It's better. I hate small talk, Jade. So thank you. <laughs> Can I just mention, I'll tell you off record, never mind. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Same. I don't do small talk. No, not even yeah. a little. I have a hard I'm time. I'm like, mm, that's boring. I don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like you you named your age as 41, you said? 40, turning 41? Yeah. Mm-hmm. <gasps> Happy early birthday. Thank you. But for you to be visible and creating these spaces, I think is, I think a lot of people don't understand how important it is or how like life-changing it can be for people because especially myself growing up, I didn't even know that transgender was a possibility. I didn't even know it was a word. And so I think there's this total lack of generational representation. And now that I look at like the 16, 18 year old people who are like coming out as trans, I'm like, oh my gosh, like, whoa, that that wasn't even a thing back in my day when I was in high school. (laughs) And so just to me, I just want to call attention to that being a huge victory that I recognize. Thank you. Um, I appreciate you saying that. It doesn't feel like that all the time. But 100%, I I feel like at 40 years old, um, the fact that I am still alive and I have fought to keep myself alive is one of my biggest victories. Um, And I honor that constantly. I would say other victories include um, my book that I published with Cypress Amber Rain, Gender Futurity, which to me is, um, for me, I've always just wanted to just be part of publishing a book. Like it was a personal thing I wanted, but the fact that it has opened up conversations on gender in the field is really exciting. Um, the conversations I get to have is uh, now is not what I was having when I was moving through our curriculum as a student, for instance. And so I'm really excited about that, right? Um, 
moving my, I have a lot of doctoral advisees. I advise about between 11 and 19 right now, um, a lot of, of graduate students. And I am legitimately proud of each of them. Like to, I am just, I'm, an, I'm a constant gloating aunt and I'm just so happy for them. And like yesterday I was reading one of my students' papers and like, so smart, but I'm sitting on my couch, headphones in laughing, cause I'm just laughing at how good it is. Like I'm feeling moved, I'm inspired. I have people in my, my apartment doing their own work and they're looking at me and I'm like, they clearly can tell I'm just enjoying sitting in my students' work. And that feels like a victory that they're still showing up in late stage, uh, you know, capitalism, uh, moving through this. Uh, that's a big victory for me. Uh, I see really small victories around me all the time. Um, I can't see the big ones really, you know, like I got a PhD, which is a big deal for a lot of reasons. I'm a first gen student and all these things, but I think the real victory is that <clears throat> through the PhD, I've cultivated some really great tools to help my community. And that feels like the bigger victory is uh, my PhD after my name can be used to sign letters of importance that can just open different doorways now. And that to me is a bigger victory. Um, yeah. I wanted to ask this question because I want people to know trans people are not just like yeah. only limited to being like your, what's it called? Um, trauma porn. Oh, completely. No, I've got a, like a rich, like a very rich life that is very difficult. And both of those things are true always together. Um, yes. And I, you know, it, there's there's no point to pretend like one doesn't exist, uh, but I can celebrate. And that goes back to our question of relating that while the world is falling around us, dancing with others is very important and laughing. I'm, I'm reminded briefly of this quotation from a, a 1970s book by a man named Larry Mitchell called, um, I'm going to use the F slur here, uh, the faggots and their friends between revolutions. And it was like world making storytelling and um this line says, um, and they use the word faggot like in a broad umbrella term of like feminine queer weirdos. Um, and they say the faggots and their friends um, live best while empires are falling. And I've been sitting with that quotation for quite some time now. And what does it mean to think about our biggest happiness comes when the world that was supposed to support us falls and we're still thriving uh, in our own worlds? Um, there's something about that, I think. I'm gonna pontificate more about that. I just learned that word. Uh, a good word. I don't think I've ever used it myself. <laughs> yeah, I think that was my first time testing it out. But I'm going to truly think and reflect on what that that means. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it's um, it's a rich one. Yeah, I'm. I, <laughs> I'm at a loss of words and that doesn't happen often <laughs> you're welcome <laughs> beautiful as we come to a close do you have any final thoughts anything you would like to clarify that we've covered earlier or anything that you feel we didn't cover that you really just want to make sure no, I'm, I'm feeling pretty, you know, this has been a really great um, conversation. Uh, I don't really have anything uh, to add other than um, 
maybe the best as as a trans uh, femme who is uh, who largely passes as white is taken up as a white person. I think it's always important to recognize that there are reasons why I am a trans woman in a tenure track job with this skin and the way that it moves through the world and that certain privileges got me here and that I should not be taken as an indication that things have gotten better. I think that that's what I always want to remember and remind folks is, yes, it's important that we have role models and there's so much work to do um, is, is sort of the, the bigger takeaway. Um, being at a place like ASU, I can be pointed to as an indicator of success. And um, that's, that's a dangerous space to be, I think. Low-key same. I know yeah. that. Yeah, I'm like, ooh, just because I'm your trans teacher doesn't mean things are better. Right, completely. It, just, it means that I had privilege working for me in many ways, race, and also like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to have you come back for a second episode and we'll unpack that too. That's a whole nother conversation into it. <laughs> yes. Do you want to call attention to any current projects you're working on or anything we can be excited about looking forward to? Sure. There's two big projects I'm working on. Um, solely parts of them will start unfolding over the next calendar year into the probably the late part of 22. But one of them is working with trans identified sex workers in Phoenix uh, to help me uh, co-create a wellness center um, here in Phoenix in the Valley of the Sun, it's called. And then um, another project is a, a book project, and this one is called uh, Pedagogies of the Enfleshed. And uh, this book is um, an auto, like a critical rhetorical autoethnography of the multiple schools I attended um, and policy, education policy in the US from when I was born, 81 to 2021, when I started transition. Um, and then this last year has been autoethnographic note work in the classroom um, that will sort of thread through the whole book itself. So I'm working on that and that's been a lot and really exciting too. Oh my gosh. I'm excited for you. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for being on our episode today. I absolutely love you so much. You are magical. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> this has been really lovely. Thank you, Jade. I really appreciate you, your time, and just your energy. Just thank you. You're a lovely host. Thank you so much. Ah, thanks. You're coming back on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so until next time. <laughs> mm.